Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real life matters. Welcome back. This is Therapist Uncensored. I'm Ann Kelly. And I'm Sue Marriott. If anyone, hopefully, and by our numbers, it appears that we've raised some interest out there and we're thrilled about that. But we realize if you're thinking, okay, I have this, I'm pregnant or I have this young child and I really want to be developing secure attachment. And I go to Google and I go, attachment parenting, guess what's going to come up primarily number one? And that is attachment parenting by Sears and Sears. And we realize that's really what people think of as attachment parenting. That's how you do it. That's the Bible, right, Sue? That's right. And so what is Sears and Sears and what is attachment parenting? Well, we're going to draw the distinction between attachment parenting and attachment theory. And Sears, he has a lot of things, present tense, in his theories and suggestions that he makes to parents that are amazing. And we'll get to that. However... If you really get into the, the, the literature on attachment parenting, you're going to realize that they have some pretty, what should we say, kind of strict guidelines, most of. Well, here's the thing. It's kind of like anything. If you take it as fundamentalism and you read it and you're like, this is what I must do, and it's a rule, then basically this is where you get into parents sort of executing a formula. And I totally get this. As a new parent, I totally know I wanted someone to tell me what to do. <laughs> That was so um, true. Right? They they load your child in the car seat in the back and they wave goodbye to you at the hospital and you're like, what? You're really going to let me drive off with this kid in the back? <laughs> you know what's so funny about that? Practically every new parent, so relax if, you, if you've had this position, goes around and tells us that they leave going, they're really going to let me do this? They feel like they have no idea. So that's part of our whole point today is... Let's separate out what we've been talking about, which is the science of relationship, the science of interpersonal neurobiology, the science of attachment with some of the more popular culture manifestations of it, which this is why Anne's talking about Sears and attachment parenting. Right, because it's the primary thing that comes up. And to Sears' credit, don't get me wrong, Sears came from this attachment period is not Sears and Sears' idea. And I say Sears and Sears because it was he and his wife that wrote the book. It's the baby book, and it became very, very popular. I guess it, it probably still is. But basically, the, the good Wasn't news... Wasn't in response to something? Yeah, Sears wrote, and I really appreciate Sears in many other different parenting experts came out. And it was really in response to the behaviorist of the early 20th century who became very... Spock. Uh, well, Spock's a good one. Watson, that really, really ended up deciding that they were going to do this medical model. And it's like, it's going to be Don't hard... spoil ch your child by picking them up. Yes, yeah, hard science. It's like, do not spoil the child if you give them too much love, kindness, and holding. You know what you're going to get? A spoiled child. Yeah, not only that, little... What does that even mean, spoiled? That makes me think of milk, right? <laughs> a little whiny, dependent, failed human. Smelly. That, that's just <laughs> counting on somebody for all its needs and hasn't learned to be independent. And of course, what we all want is a child that grows up into some secure, independent, can take care of themselves. That can so, launch. So why not make them learn it at the very start so they don't get all whiny to begin with? And of course not research-based on any level, just some expertise coming it's out. It's dismissive avoidant people who... 
<laughs> need to have that reflected in their children. Not that I know, but that's my guess. That's your guess. Well, and then, of course, as if you're a listener of our program, you've heard a great deal of research, and if not, you'll hear some today, and that is that it's just the opposite. Research is just astounding and abounding, that it's the very opposite, that to get an independent, secure, confident child and adult, actually, you really need to surround them with love tenderness, kindness. And responsiveness, which means you do pick them up when they cry. Right. There's exactly. no way there's no way to spoil a child, especially a child under twelve months at all. Ever, ever, ever in any circumstance when you pick them up when they are distressed. Well, that's a good point because actually what attachment really is is how a child feels and how it can relate to when it becomes distressed, how will the world respond to it? So it's not really all those sweet pictures of loving parents looking um, lovingly at their child. That actually is the, not... The picture should be of a snotty child screaming <laughs> and the parents staying calm and picking the child up and helping them regulate, right? That is secure attack. We all do that, right? Especially in the grocery store where they've dropped to the ground. Boneless, so, going boneless. <laughs> going boneless. So really, when you hear attachment and attachment theory, what we're really speaking about is that a child learns that the world, primarily their primary caregiver, can safely respond to them when they're distressed. And how they respond to their distress is really the underpinning and core. So Sears and many others, but we're going to speak about Sears because that, as we said, is sort of what comes up when you look at attachment parenting. And Google. And Google, <laughs> which we all do, really does his recommendations and his theory really does come from Bowlby and attachment theorists and from the underpinnings. So let's talk about that. So basically they talk about the three Bs, which is breastfeeding, Baby wearing. Baby wearing. And baby sleeping. I don't know what the sleeping. B is. Co-sleeping. <laughs> They've got a bunch of bees. They've got seven bees. That's right. But but the gist of it is, is that, you know, if you take it too far, if you take it an extreme, that you breastfeed on demand for as long as your child wants it, that you sleep with them as long as the child wants it, and that you hold them as much as absolutely physically possible. Practically constantly. And in doing so... The goal is that that child feels the connection, has a ton of skin to skin contact, has the breastfeeding, which we would agree with that a lot of good bonding happens during breastfeeding, but we'll get into more details about that. So I smell a rat. I think you're about to say, but <laughs> <laughs> there's a problem with this or something. Well, I mean, the core to this, like we, a lot of the underpinnings that Sears suggests, and when you read it, he's going to really help you hear the research about evolution and why we're that way and why many, many cultures, besides the Western culture, sleep with their child. Many, many cultures breastfeed on demand. Many, and, and it's not that that isn't actually accurate and very valid, but it sends the message if you don't do this, your child will be insecure and not develop the type of attachment. That's right. So think about like if you come from a culture that breastfeeding is frowned upon, which are many, many cultures actually, right? To have that exposure in public, like if for some reason that your baby doesn't feed well or that you don't respond well to the baby feeding on your breast, it basically sets people up to feel bad or guilty. Well, bad guilt, you're almost freaked out. Like, if I don't do this, my child won't attach. And some mothers really can't breastfeed. And so if you set yourself up to Yeah, either that, culturally mm -hmm. or interpersonally or any reason. Thrush, actually, also medically. Physically. That's right. 
Right. And so don't get me wrong. We're proponents of breastfeeding. Breastfeeding good. Lots of resources suggest it. Breastfeeding can create a great deal of bonding. Skin to skin contact, the smell, all of those does build the concept of bonding and love and security. But what about formula? Are we okay with formula? That's a really good point. So what happens, What the attachment theory is not around whether you breastfeed. Attachment theory is how responsive you are to the child's distress and the child's needs. So um, so if you breastfeed and you're looking at your iPhone, would that be okay? That's our point. You can have a mother that's breastfeeding and not connecting to the child. A newspaper. You can put the newspaper up between you and the child. I've actually seen that. I I've have actually, too, actually. <laughs> where there's a newspaper between that, there's a phone, etc. So they're breastfeeding. They're doing what Sears says is the right thing. Now, granted, Sears talks about eye-to-eye contact. But it, breastfeeding in and of itself, it's really the... That's res- not the magic elixir. It's not the magic elixir. It's not what the child or how the child, what method the child gets fed by. Is is the child being fed in a loving, responsive way, in a way that they feel connected to the mother and the mother connected to them? Because attachment is a two-way process. What I love about what you're saying, though, is it really opens it up for either pumping and the father feeding... Right. Or the other parent, it's not always the father, or the formula. And mm-hmm. while we tend to prefer breast milk over formula, it's entirely possible for any number of reasons, adoption, there's a million reasons why you wouldn't have breast milk available. But it allows the other parent, whoever that is, male, female, whatever, to be able to bond with a child because they can do all the same things. They can have the skin to skin. They can have the eye contact. They can have what they call baby ease, which is the language between the mother and the baby or the parent and the baby where they're ooing and aahing and connecting and while they're feeding. And so I particularly love that part of what you're saying, Anne. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it brings and in the other parent, the, the other connections that can help that and help the mother rest. And I mean, I guess that brings up out of the mess. So we said Sears really stresses the breastfeeding, the holding constantly and the co-sleeping. But if we really talk about what attachment theory is, the three essentials for developing secure functioning. Let's go over that Ooh, and then three. we'll go back. Right, bring there's out three. your notepads. <laughs> <laughs> so there's developing a sense of safety and security in the infant. There's regulating emotions. There's going to be a quiz at the end, everybody. By soothing distress. And that's also creating joy and calm. So what we're talking about then is that the the mother and the infant, the, the infant does not know how to regulate their emotions at all. Right. They're one big amygdala. Their cortex, their whole brain is basically fear-based. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so they need the parent to be the bigger mind that is like, that's okay. Everything's okay. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. It's just when a they, shadow. You're just hungry. It's okay. So when they get distressed, they're turning to the, they can't, they use the mother. They use the primary caregiver to regulate their body. And it is through that relationship that when they get dysregulated, the mother actually completely regulates them or the caregiver. And then as the infant grows through this process, they learn to regulate their own body. And their little brain develops little neurons that will actually help them do that. Exactly. And then the third one is to a secure base for exploration. See, that's really important because it's not just love, love, love. Can, like, I'm going to wear my baby, wear my baby, wear my baby. What if your baby wants to get down? What if your baby now is a toddler and is ready to roam? 
but you're imposing this idea that they have to be attached at the hip, which isn't being responsive and attuned to your child's actual needs, that what we want to do is fill the child up, let them explore, and then let them run back to the safe base, the safe haven, and then they fill back up. I, I used to talk about it with my kids as uh, charging your battery. So they would go out, their battery would get low, they would come back, and they would fill up, and then they would go back out again. So it's both things. It's both the exploration and the refueling. Absolutely. So the idea, thats I think that's one reason so important to talk about the differences is that I think any paradigm taken as a role, this is the roadmap to security. That's right. Is actually wear your child, wear your child, or sleep with your child, sleep or with sleep your child. with your child, sleep with your child, or breastfeed, breastfeed, breastfeed. Anything taken as a rule, and we don't do that. That creates anxiety. In fact, anxiety in the primary caregiver and the mother is one of the worst things we can do to help in that bonding because the parent, the child, the infant is looking to you to feel secure in how it is that you're approaching this child. So, so if you don't like your baby on your boob, <laughs> you get to have boundaries around that so that you can be free and loving with your child while you're feeding them. Absolutely. And that you can have the eye contact and the warmth and the love and the sense of helping them regulate and feel. And what I would connected. say too is like about the bed, one of the really important things is how the marriage goes is how the family goes. So one of the great things about not co-sleeping, and again, co-sleeping is fine if that's what you want and that's what your family can do and that's what the rest of the kids can manage and all of those things, that works. Everybody's getting enough sleep. But we want to give permission for all kinds of ranges outside of that, like having a bassinet right next to the bed so that there can be romance or talking or cuddling between the parents and then as the baby in the middle of the night, I'm talking about an infant, right, gets hungry or needs comfort or whatever, the parents are still able to be super responsive and right there. Or there's a crib in the bed. Or there's a bassinet or a crib further away, but there's a monitor. And so the parents can re still respond. The idea behind this is that there's a ton of flexibility about responsiveness. It doesn't actually have to be any one thing at all, like that they can't be in their bed or that they have to be in the bed. Right. It really has to do with what's going to work for the family. The other parent has to be included in what works best for the family. And, you know, maybe mom is super scared of rolling over on the baby and killing it so they can't sleep ever. And then they're more sleepless in Seattle. And then they have more trouble during the day. We don't know. But the notion is to keep updating your model and you get to have some flexibility around this. I love what you're saying. So it's like not following a specific rule, but and having no some formulas. Well, especially right now. I mean, there is a big push by many people because of SIDS to not have your child in bed. So if you're getting the one information that's, and don't get me wrong, there's many people that follow Sears and he has even pushed it generally that it doesn't need to be co-sleeping. It could be sleeping close. So there are some people who really support attachment parenting that are into sleeping close and have all sorts of variations. And there's some people that are expressing attachment parenting that are pretty much, this is the way to do it. And so what we're trying to talk about is really listening to yourself. And if you have this idea, oh my gosh, the left hand is telling me sleep with my child and that's the only way to do it. And the right hand saying, I might smother it. That's kind of a catch-22 that you find yourself caught in, and a lot of parents do. And so we're trying to help you guys listen to yourself. We're talking about responsiveness, but there's another word we really want to bring in this, and that's attunement. 
Because let's say you decide sleeping with your baby is the best thing for you and your family. But as you put the baby, the baby doesn't seem comfortable, seems distressed. And when you actually set it in the bassinet next to you, you can feel its body relaxing. And you can see that that actually is what works for that child's temperament. Or maybe you try to put the child in another bedding and it can't settle. It's really what's important is to be able to tune into your baby and tune into yourself and have attunement. That's what builds secure attachment. I think that's right. And also tuning into yourself. So what I've seen more in my practice is that people end up co-sleeping and having, you know, four and five-year-olds in their bed. Or that they're trying to put their four or five year old in their own room and the four and five year old still or six or seven or eight still wants to come into the parent's bed. And that to me feels more of like the controversial piece of how do we handle that? And my message to you all, and this is just me, not anything official, but if it doesn't work for the family, like your four or five year old can be disappointed and learn to sleep on their own, when you get more sleep, and you're able to have romance or connection or cuddling or talking with your partner, or you don't have a partner and you're on your own, but you actually are well rested, then you can get up and be way more responsive and less resentful. And frankly, less mean at times to the child. And so I would much rather in some ways that to me, I always think about put oxygen mask on you first. And then you make sure everybody else is safe. Because if we're not taking care of ourselves, then we're going to end up enacting something that is not good for the kids. That's a great point. And a lot of times when listening to yourself, sometimes the reason you start activating is you're doing something you think other people think you should be doing. Right. We always uh, respond to the audience in our head. Isn't that so true? So maybe you're breastfeeding and your child's a year and a half old and it feels really in line with you, but you're sitting next to people that you can feel or you're getting, you're reading that somehow that's off. And so I think what we're talking about here is being able to tune in to what feels instinctually right for you and your infant or your child, and that there's a two-minute and responsive, not rule following. And part of what's important about that is that if you stop breastfeeding because for some reason that you feel uncomfortable at a year and a half or a year or whatever, your child's going to be fine. And oh, if yeah. you keep breastfeeding, your child's going to be fine. <laughs> Basically, some of our message is that kids bounce, and it's going to be really important. You know, they're resilient. But particularly, like, take care of yourself, because if you're doing it because you think it's the right thing to do, but you're really stretching yourself, that's going to be a problem. Or if you feel like it's right, but you're being imposed upon by culture to not do something, whether it be co-sleeping or carrying or breastfeeding, that's also not good, right? Like, because mm-hmm. that's that's someone else's rule that you're interacting with instead of you and your child finding your own rhythm. That's a really good point. You know, an example that comes to my mind that I hear parents feel anxiety over is the comparison inevitably that you have in my baby sleeping through the night is yours. And the sense of satisfaction that one that has a a four or six month old that's sleeping through the night and somebody that has one waking up. Now, that what's interesting about that, if you had a film on that... Isn't that like some sort of a, a prize thing? Like, yeah. my baby my, is sleeping you know, through the night. It really can be expressed <laughs> like that. And the truth is, if you had a video camera on that infant sleeping through the night, likely you would find out they're not. Actually, most research studies show that most infants wake up during the night. Do they reach out or do they not may differ. Now, 
having said that, if your child's sleeping and not waking you up in the night, that may be a sign that they're soothing and they're feeling really good. It right, may, that, that they're waking up naturally and then they're putting themselves back to sleep, which we all do most right. of the time. We kind of wake up a little bit and we put ourselves back to sleep. It may be very much a sign that they've learned how to do that and maybe there's something you've done that's helped them. Maybe it's just that their temperament. But here's the deal. It is not actually true that if your child's sleeping through the night, it's more secure. And if your child is not sleeping through the night, it's actually insecure. Amen, sister. That is not <laughs> true. And the goal, sometimes you feel parents starting to put a lot of pressure on themselves. Even to, I've heard people trying to help each other sleep train as early as three or four months. Hey, wait, Sue, just a second. Let's take a minute out to, to thank our sponsor. Now, our listeners come from all types of professions and backgrounds all over the world, and we're so happy about that. And we are also really honored that many of our subscribers are mental health professionals like Sue and myself. And like us, many of you did not become clinicians because you were ecstatic about focusing on the business aspect of your practice. We want our attention to be on our clients and other really important endeavors. And that is where Theranest comes in. Now, Theranest is a practice management system for mental health professionals, and it can really help easily streamline your whole entire practice. It has a client portal for scheduling and great calendar organization. It has HIPAA-compliant notes and documentation, one-click claim submissions, credit card processing, and one of the really great parts also, it has a really amazing live customer service. So there's no reason not to check it out. You can try it for free. And as a listener, they are offering you 20% off for the first three months. And how you would get that is you would go to theranist.com backslash therapist uncensored. We're also will have a link on our website. So that is theranist.com backslash therapist uncensored. All right, let's get back to our show. Let's talk about sleep training related to this because it's really important. Now, there are some very deep attachment parenting. Hey, you guys need to listen to this because Anne does all this research before the before our podcast. So she really, really, really knows like, okay, here's the updated information. Okay, so, so you're outing me for my research nerdiness. <laughs> she writes dissertations on every podcast. That's true. I am a nerd. It's very, very true. But it's great for y'all. So, so here's what the have thing. you learned? What have I learned? So the thing about it is, is that children up to 12 months they wake up in the night and that is the case. And it's a natural part when they're obviously the first three, four, five months, they need to eat and they aren't supposed to be sleeping through the night and they are supposed to be reaching out is the scariest time and for any mammal to be alone and more vulnerable. So they're going to reach out and that is a normal, healthy thing. And if your baby's crying through the night, that is just as healthy of, of a baby that you may not be hearing from. And at times, actually, it couldn't even be more healthy because what happens is, is that if sleep training, for example, what I was saying before I was outed is that <laughs> some really deep proponents of attachment parenting will real you're going to read some really rough articles about sleep training and how horrible it is for infants. And I want to come back and really stand against wait, that. Wait, 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 Anne, what do you mean by sleep training? Sleep training, okay, so when you think about sleep training, the more traditional idea of sleep training is also ferberizing. 
and that is a method. Wait, wait, wait. What does ferberizing mean? A method where you allow the babies to cry it out for specific periods of time. Now, there's some methods that are, you just let them cry, but ferber actually is a method that's more gentle. It's timed. The parent comes back in at specific periods of time, touches the baby, doesn't pick them up, but touches, reassures, leaves again, and basically weans the child into knowing they could fall asleep on their own. Now, I've heard parents up to four months start to put pressure on themselves to ferberize. And even Ferber right now will say, you don't want to do that before six months because a baby is not ready to sleep train prior to six months. And because a baby needs the mother. Okay, wait, so let's just be really clear. So six months and below, you respond absolutely every time to your child at night and you feed them and you don't worry about it. Not necessarily feed them, but you respond. And let's come back to that. First three, four months, absolutely feeding. But as a child matures, the cries may be different. They may be wet. Some very strict attachment parenting would say you feed them every single time they cry. And as they grow older, actually, you need to learn the distinction in their cries because they may actually be wet. They may not be hungry. I love that. And, you know, really good parents can really distinguish between like actual distress a wet cry, meaning that your child needs just to be changed, right. hunger or pain. And often even new parents can really right away distinguish between the different pitches and tones of cry. And it's so important. Remember, attachment is about attunement attunement to distress. So if you go to the place... If you, yeah, if you always stick a bottle or a breast in their mouth every time they cry. <laughs> especially, especially for the first year of life. How do you become attuned to the various cries and the, the various nuances of the that. nuances? Maybe that they're actually feeling pain. Maybe they have a sore throat, or and so yeah, have a gas pain or yeah, exactly. So being able to learn and not now the first couple of months likely it is hunger, but as they grow older, you need to learn the nuances and be able to respond to that. And so again, even the strict verbalizing parent training specialists say for six months. However, in the first year, a child may show a lot of signs and there are other ways to sleep train. And what sleep train really means is helping the baby to be able to learn that they actually can put themselves back to sleep without that they can wake up and that they don't need you necessarily to go back to sleep, that they can put themselves back to sleep. So there are a lot of recommendations if you go to sleep training from an attachment perspective that have a lot of different recommendations that aren't necessarily the cry it out, but are gentle responding, being really attuned to the child, but also teaching them. And one of it is teaching a child at a pretty young age that you can actually put them down prior to falling asleep. Because as a child learns to go down prior to falling asleep, but you're sitting right there, they can go down and fall asleep. Right. And you know what it makes me think of, Anna, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but like, is that they coo and they talk to themselves. And the idea is that they are sort of processing their day. And they don't have the English language, but basically they have baby ease. And so you can that you hear like the sounds and the talking and they sort of talk themselves down into sleep, which is you might not have a chance to do if you're feeding all the way till you're asleep in your parents' arms, then they put you into the crib already asleep. And then when you wake up and you feel like, oh my God, something must be wrong because I'm not connected to the, I'm not physically connected Mm -hmm. or I'm not physically eating. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I think, where you're going with this, um, you know, that you get them very sleepy and then you put them down so that then they can do that last little leg of putting themselves to sleep and they can learn to sleep on their own. Why they're feeling safe and secure. While they're you're feeling putting them down, absolutely responded to. Absolutely responded to. That's a really great summary of it. And the reason, so the interesting thing we said that a child sleeping through the night, I want to come back to this may be a sign because they've learned that the parents are very responsive and secure and they've learned to put themselves back to sleep. It really may be an indication of that. Actually, but we have to hit that it also may be an indication that we got a little robust in the sleep training at a really young age and the child's cried it out and it actually could be a form of learning, oh, my, my mother is not going to respond and I know it. I've cried in distress and they've ignored it. It's more it. of a collapse. Yeah, it's more of that's a-, a really great point. You know, I remember one time, this is a live parenting example, but fortunately, it's going to make me look really good. So I'm going to share it. <laughs> but basically, my oldest son one time said he was really young, and he had spent the night at somebody's house. And I was like, nervous about it, because he was so young. And I said, Oh, how'd it go? You know, and, and he said that he had woken up in the middle of the night, and that he kind of sat up or something. And he thought to himself, I mean, that he was old enough to say this, so that kind of indicates his age, but he, that his actual thought was, I'm here with people who love me. And he, mm. and he put himself back to sleep. And that was just like, oh, la. One <laughs> <laughs> of like, those parenting moments. That is the answer. Like, that's the whole idea. The secure, like you wake up, you know that if you actually were distressed, you could reach out, but you don't have to. You can actually put yourself back to sleep. But that's different than what Anne is, was just referring to, which is that you wake up, you know that no one will be there in the middle of the night. So you put yourself back to sleep. That's really important because we've been talking about the series, but there's also a set of training. If you haven't parent, if you haven't trained your child to sleep through the night, that that's actually that you could experience some shaming about that. And I want to equally uh, debunk that because that actually isn't actually true. And in fact, studies have shown that in comparing sleep training, when they do the initial cortisol level of infants and mothers, and remember, we're wanting attunements. So we're wanting the mother's body to be attuned to the baby. So if the babies experience a certain level of cortisol increase, likely the mother is. And that match is seen as a good thing. And when a baby's crying at night, I know this is going to be a shock to you new parents out there. Your cortisol level is probably just as high as the baby's. <laughs> it's out the roof. <laughs> out the roof. So what they show in sleep training is that after three days, it is in fact true, after three days of sleep training that starts to work on the infant, is that after three days, the child quits expressing as much distress. And so they may start at equal level cortisol, meaning that is the stress hormone. And then after three days, they will test the mother and the baby. The interesting thing about that is that the mother's cortisol level after three days, because the baby's quieter, is lower. But even though the baby's quieter, it might be interesting to know that their cortisol levels are still ringing high. So now the mother and the baby aren't actually matched. The mother thinks that the baby is content and quiet, but actually the baby has learned to quit crying out. Now, I don't want to do that as a rule because some babies, if you're attuned, may actually have been laying down and being able to be soothed and responsive and after six months start learning to really go to sleep. 
But we don't want to make the assumption just because your baby's sleeping through the night, you're successful. And if your baby's still waking up, you're not. That's really a myth. I think that's a really great point. And it would also promote <laughs> super anxiety <laughs> among those parents that are like, oh, crap, my baby <laughs> is like, I put my baby in the crib, I don't respond like in the next in the first two minutes, and they go back to sleep. So everything must be okay. <laughs> Yeah, we started out this to decrease anxiety. And what you're saying is that I may have just increased Oh, it. actually, I don't think that's true. I think that the thing is, if you're a young parent or a new parent, it's miserable. <laughs> <laughs> that's the rule of thumb anyway. You so never, we're not making me miserable. You're already miserable. <laughs> but we are trying to say, this is, I think, the general message is that your kids bounce. They're going to let you know what they need. And... I think that unless you're like very, very avoidant, way on the blue side, that your kids, if they're not okay in the middle of the night, they're going to let you know. And that if you're responsive in general to your kids, it doesn't mean you necessarily have to pick them up and feed them and stay up all night and, and wait till they fall asleep and put them down. But but more of that, like you're letting them know you're there and that there's a wide range that the, those of you that are still sleeping with your kids, it's like, it's, you know, your kids are going to be fine. It's not like they're going to be screwed up. And those of you that really, for your family, it's going to work a lot better for your kids to be in a bassinet and then a crib and then a crib in their own room sooner than later. Your marriage will be better. You'll get better sleep. Like, that's also fine, too. Like, there's, it's not going to screw up your kid. Basically, that's what we're saying. Actually, and I'm going to reduce stress another way because you've outed me as a researcher. I'm going to give one more research finding, which I thought was really fascinating. And that was... You know what? Our, our regular listeners already know that you're a research, research nerd. So it's all good. It's all good. So one of the studies they did, and you could be opposite. Oh, my God. What I can't do is I need to be responsive. Well, they did a study on children where they assessed them and parents of children with insecure and parents with children of securely assessed children, actually with children with bassinets, actually respond to their children the same amount of time. So it isn't actually true if you're avoiding out there, you're not responding to your child. And if you have a a child that's secure, it's because you're always responding. They actually in frequency will respond equal number of times. Now here's what's going to reduce your, your insecurity. And that is sometimes the response of children who are more avoidant. The, so the good news is you can be totally off at least 30% of the right, time. This is a pass fail. This, this isn't is until <laughs> you have to get a A. Exactly. You can be totally off 30% of the time. Really what's important because we are going to be misattuned. We are just human. And right. I think it's like 30% of the time that these secure parents are really accurately attuned and they're like in sync and they're dancing with their baby. And then another 33 or whatever percent of the time, they're a little bit off and they're trying to get back in sync. They're not necessarily in sync, but they're aware they're not in sync and they're trying to reconnect. And then another 33% of the time, they're just like out you to can just field. <laughs> you're going to miss it and not even know you're it. You're picking your nose and it's fine. Because you don't totally even know. totally fine. That 30% you don't even know you missed. That's just a research camera getting you. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, but, and, but what we're saying is this is a pass fail. So as long as you get it right most of the time, or you're trying to get it right most of the time, you're in good shape. So this is our anti-shame conversation right here. <laughs> like you take that shame right now off of you and your paranoia about, oh my gosh, my kid and blah. And instead, like set that aside and you go pay attention and you pay attention to yourself too, 
because that's part of this whole thing. I think that Anne was talking about, like we, it has to work for the whole family, not just the infant. And then you're going to be in good shape. And in actuality, even the 30% of the time that you miss it and you're repairing, that's actually really wonderful. Oh, it is. Because, yeah, because the world, believe it or not, I know this may be a shock to all listeners, but the world actually doesn't respond yeah, to we're your... we're not that sensitive. The world doesn't respond to your children perfectly as they grow up to be adults. I know that's shocking, but they will have to live. Right. We, we, don't, we don't want to create little narcissistic kids. They will have to live with disappointed people not matching their needs. And so part of what they're learning when their needs get misattuned is repair and connection, and that when it gets misattuned, we get realigned. And that's actually a really, really healthy thing for kids to learn. So you don't need to get a perfect, in fact, it's better for a child to learn. They need to learn to get distressed. So if you're trying to meet their needs, and in, again, in the extreme yeah. attachment parenting, it says, meet their needs before they cry as much as possible. Eh, the children need to learn to cry. Right. One and down, one years old and down is a different thing. But once right. they're one and up, like we can begin, especially two and up, we're right. totally negotiating now. You have a self, little baby, and I have a self, and we're going to work this out together. And that is a really, really good message for the child. It's really true because you're building secure attachment, just not in the first 12, 18 months throughout well, well, life. Well, right. But the, well, the first, the first 24 months is when you do that foundation of Absolutely. like you're going to be responded to. But what we're saying is like, kind of beyond that, like it, it gets to be that the child is aware that there's another person. And that they are not just an extension of themselves and that we're going to negotiate this. Mm -hmm. So you have to say please before you get your goldfish or whatever it is. And that that is a healthy, good thing. And believe me, it's going to make your lives a lot easier than only trying to be an extension of your child and making them happy and orbiting them, which is not at all the idea behind attachment. And making sure that they're not having any distress after 12 months. That is impossible. Uh, that's and right. Prepare the child for the path not the path for the child. Well stated. All Thank right. you so much for listening. And we really appreciate all of our loyal listeners that hang in and also our newbies. Thank you so much. And please, well, the best thing you can do if you like what we're doing is to give us a rating and review on your podcast player. We read every single one of them. We take it to heart and we really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. We'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.